I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains sensitive topics and discussions. Listener discretion is advised. The perpetrator of a young woman's brutal murder was quickly identified, but would society side with him anyway? This is the Jennifer Levin story. Well, Amy, it is almost Halloween. Ugh, your favorite time of year. Do you know that we actually air an episode on Halloween, which might be a first, so I'll be excited for that. But you know I just get excited for Halloween in general every year, right? Why? I mean, it's not because, like you, I know you like to dress up your dog, so that's not the reason Mm -hmm. why. I would think you would have known this by now, but I am such a horror movie buff. Yes, yes, So in the week or two leading up to Halloween, they air all the classics. I like most of the fictional classics, just to be clear. I like Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh my gosh, Poltergeist, Alien. The list just goes on. Do you know, you know, I might be telling you something novel here. You can stream any of that anytime. You don't have to wait for Halloween. (laughs) I do know that, but they have, it's like an excuse to watch all the movies that I want to watch. Okay. And like, I'll tell James, I'm just going to sit on the couch for a couple days and watch these bad movies and he'll make me popcorn. I feel like it's just a good excuse to like get in that mode. Have you seen Cocaine Bear yet? No, but it's on my list. You promised me you were going to watch it. I am. It's on my list. I'm surprised you watched it. You really liked it, right? I liked it, but I I was like shaking as I was watching it. Were you shaking out of fear or... Like, what was the shaking about? Just I don't know. I had to stop it like three times. It was just too much gore for me. Oh. I had a visceral reaction to it. I like felt sick. It's, it's very gory. So it's gore. I mean, you don't like gore. That makes perfect sense. That's not your thing. No, but it's really good. It's it's a fantastic movie, though. So you right. like it. I'm definitely going to see that. I'm sure your kids are excited about dressing up and like all the... Oh, you like Halloween because you steal their candy. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I know you're going to say that. <laughs> you're not going to do it. I know you're not going to do the Jimmy Kimmel challenge, right? Because you're afraid your kids will, like, have real meltdowns. <laughs> For mean, anyone who doesn't know the Jimmy Kimmel challenge, and I bet a lot of people do, it's when, you know, parents will tell their kids, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, we got really hungry last night. We ate all your Halloween candy. <laughs> it's so kids, funny like, freak out it is very funny it's very funny you're right your kids would you, they probably couldn't handle it so all right okay uh that's still one week away anyway and while today's case isn't a horror movie it does remind us that our monsters don't always look like they do in the movies today's case is one that i initially heard about when i was very young and i bet you have too but it's always stuck with me 
I chose it because the perpetrator involved was in the news again recently, Mm -hmm. and I was very annoyed. I just want to let you know to see his name. I also realized that this was a case I just cared so much about, but I had yet to cover. It has so many important issues, Amy, including victim blaming, proportionality of punishment, fairness, plea bargaining, etc., And I also lived just blocks from where this crime was committed for quite some years in New York City. As did I. Yes, Uh I know you did as well. So bringing this case from over 35 years ago back to our attention, I hope we can engage in a very meaningful discussion and compare thoughts on how things may or may not have changed since this tragic crime. For those who remember her and for those who might not, I'd like to introduce Jennifer Levin. Jennifer Levin was a beautiful, bright, charismatic 18-year-old young woman at the time of the events we're discussing today. Jennifer had one older sister, Danielle, with whom she was very close. And while her parents, Ellen and Steve, divorced when Jennifer was young, she still had a very good relationship with both of her parents and her sister. Jennifer grew up on Long Island with her mother in Port Washington, New York. I didn't realize that. I know Port Washington. You know, I'm assuming you know it's it beautiful. very well, too. Yeah, I love Port mm-hmm. Washington. But as a teenager, Jennifer moved to live with her successful realtor father and her stepmother in Soho, Manhattan. Soho is south of Houston Street, for those of you who aren't New Yorkers. And Jennifer wanted to live in New York City because she thought it would be cool to live in New York City. It is cool to live in New York City. <laughs> right? And as a teenager, but... Soho was a bit rough in the 1980s. It Mm -hmm. was filled with factories and had a more dark, gritty feel than it has now. Now it's filled with restaurants and many clothing shops. Such was not the case then. But Jennifer made friends there, mostly kids who lived in the privileged Upper East Side along Fifth Avenue. Jennifer was described as fun feisty, loving, and happy in general. And you can see a lot of pictures of her. I mean, she was just a fun kid. She went to a private school and was just days away from leaving the city for her first year of college in Boston. As many teens were at this time, Jennifer was part of the bar club scene that was very popular in New York City in the 80s. Now, these were kids who were living very adult lives in her social circle. They were staying out as late as they wanted. They were drinking in excess, using drugs heavily and just partying. They had their own credit cards. They had their own you know, lives that I probably couldn't necessarily relate to as an 18-year-old. At the time, Manhattan, this is Manhattan in the 1980s, and there was a very high crime rate. Known as the gritty city, drug dealing and drug use was open and rampant, as was sex work and other street crimes. Times Square was not the Disney experience that we see today. It was quite dangerous. Do you remember this, Amy? I mean, I was a little too young to be there firsthand, but oh, sure. It comes up in all of my crim classes. Right. So I discussed this as well. And I have a really quick anecdote about my parents in the 80s. (laughs) My mom loved the city and my dad hated it, but she had finally convinced him after really a lot of pleading, I think, to go to a Broadway show and out for dinner. And, you know, he was like, oh, the city, it's all crime ridden. She was like, it's not going to be like that. You'll see. I promise. Well, needless to say, fast forward to after the show, Times Square, They somehow got caught in like a shootout. There was a shooting. I mean, I don't even know if it was drug related or whatnot, but my parents wound up like going down, you know, on the street when they have the basement entrances to restaurants, they wound up like diving into the basement. Oh, geez. Yes. I mean, it was quite serious. Needless to say, they were fine, but my dad never returned to the city until I lived there, maybe 20 something years later. And, you know, his thing was, I told you so, kind of, unfortunately, for my mother. (laughs) It's amazing how I can know you so well and you still have stories I've never heard of. I know. Well, that one came back to me as I was writing this. Okay, so many of the parks, unfortunately, then were havens for drug use. And, you know, in the late 70s to early 80s, this comprised mostly of heroin and crack use. But among all these danger zones in a city filled with graffiti and crime, there was sort of a protected privilege zone, which began in the East 60s. This is just east of Central Park and ran up to the low 90s or Mm -hmm. it might have at the time run up to 96th Street. 
And this was the scene for the crime we discuss today. I'm assuming this is the area that parents would expect their children to be safe in? That would be very correct, yes. But as we'll find out, you know, no area is exempt from crime. On the evening of August 25th, 1986, New York City was abuzz with young college students saying their goodbyes at the last of the summer parties and nights out with friends. Jennifer Levin was one among those young people. She was with friends at a bar, Dorian's Red Hand. This is a popular Upper East Side bar among the young and affluent in New York City at the time. And it was still around in my time. I've been to Dorian's plenty of times. Yeah. You? My time, too. It wasn't considered, in my recollection, it wasn't upscale. It was just a regular bar. Yeah, it was a regular bar, but it became a hot spot. For- I mean, I think it's still there probably, too, no? From a couple of years ago, it was there. But, you know, I haven't yeah. really been in that area in the city in maybe four or five years. Even when I go in, I'm I'm not in that area anymore. Yeah, my cousin lives in that area. And as of last year, Dorian's was still very much still there. Looks the same. And I think at the time, the owner had a son who was part of that crowd. So I think that's probably why it also became a hotspot for those kids. Mm-hmm. So it was a regular hangout. It was one of Jennifer's regular hangouts. It was also the hangout spot for 19-year-old Robert Chambers. Robert was a handsome young man who was friends with friends of Jennifer's, and she became friendly with Robert as well. On that evening, Robert, Jennifer, and others hung out until the early morning hour of around 4 a.m. at the bar before leaving. But just a few hours later, a female biker traveling through Central Park near the Metropolitan Museum of Art spotted a young woman lying under a tree and not moving. She called 911 from a close payphone. Remember, this is pre-cell phones. Mm-hmm. And the police were on their way. Much to everyone's shock, the young woman was Jennifer Levin, lying dead with her skirt pulled up, bra and blouse also pulled up, exposing her breasts, and she was missing her jewelry. It appeared at that point to be a possible sexual assault or a robbery at first glance. On her neck, Jennifer had very dark red marks, and a lot of them, indicating possible strangulation. But other injuries were plain to see as well. A thorough exam by the medical examiner revealed the extent of her injuries. Her teeth were loose, which means that someone had to have knocked her in the face so hard or she fell so hard, jarring some of the teeth to become loose. Her left eye was coming out of the socket. There was bruising to her face the marks on her neck, bruising to her body. So there are various injuries here. But who could have committed this vicious crime against a seemingly innocent young woman? This might be obvious, but I'm assuming she was sexually assaulted. That's a very good question, Amy. And it did appear that she was sexually assaulted, or it looked like that on the surface, but the medical examiner determined that she was not, in fact, assaulted, which was surprising. Yeah. And just so you know, the police initially thought that this had to be a stranger, It had all the markings of a stranger, but let me just tell you, they would be mistaken. It didn't take long for the police to identify the perpetrator of this crime, Amy. They first interviewed Jennifer's good friend, Alex Legata, to find out her whereabouts since Jennifer's father said that she was spending the night with Alex. Alex gave them other names of people they hung out with the night before at Dorian's, and so there were more interviews. But it it really didn't take long to narrow it down to one person that Jennifer was seen with at the closing around 4 a.m. Did they have surveillance cameras as well? No, they did not. This was all eyewitness. Okay. But it was quick. And the person whom she was last seen with at 4 a.m. was Robert Chambers. As I said, he was no stranger to Jennifer or to Dorian's. He was a friend and possibly the last person to see her alive, which was why the police knew they had to speak with him right away. The police went to Robert's home on East 90th Street, but they were shocked when he opened the door. Robert had deep, fresh scratches all over his face and a clearly injured right hand. Okay, so that's not looking good for him. Not at all. He was brought to the police station for questioning where he spoke freely without an attorney and voluntarily. Robert also showed the detectives his torso where he had fresh scratches all over which he said that he got them from playing with his cat. Okay. But the police weren't buying it. And by the way, it was later revealed that he did have a cat that was declawed. So that wouldn't work either. The police questioned him about the night before. And Robert said that he'd been at Dorian's 
and he saw Jennifer and they left around the same time, but went their separate ways after saying goodbye in front of the bar. However, this questioning went on for a couple of hours. And after a few hours, Robert's story began to change. As it usually does. Exactly. Saying goodbye in front of the bar turned into the pair leaving and walking together up 86th Street towards the park. But then the real bombshell came. Robert was supposed to meet his girlfriend, Alex, at the bar. It's not Alex Legata. It was a different Alex. And when he showed up very late, Alex got very angry and yelled at Robert in front of everyone, which really annoyed him. But he was even more irritated because Jennifer Levin saw and laughed about it, was laughing at him, as were others in the bar. So now we see motive, possibly. Well, yeah, there's something here. Eventually, Alex left Robert and Jennifer at the bar, going on her own way. And Robert said Jennifer wanted to talk to him. And according to Robert, Jennifer wanted to go someplace quieter. So they left together to go talk in Central Park. But yet he didn't feel the need to tell investigators that part right away. So, you know, this is already looking very shady. Oh, yeah. I I mean, especially with the scratches on his face, too. Mm -hmm. Robert said that he wasn't interested in anything sexual, but Jennifer was. And she became pushy, insisting that they sit under a tree together. And when he rebuffed her advances, she became angry and scratched his face. So that explains the scratches. Ridiculous. He sat back down against the tree at Jennifer's insistence while she went to go use the bathroom. When Jennifer came back, Robert said that she tied his hands behind his back with her underwear, then removed his pants and fondled his genitals. He said that he became angry because she was rough and she was hurting him, scratching his chest. And at that point, Robert managed to free a hand from behind his back and grabbed Jennifer by the neck, flipping her over by her neck and off of him. So he is actually claiming self-defense in a way. Absolutely. He said that when he got up, he realized that Jennifer was not moving. Robert said that he panicked and left her once he realized she wasn't breathing and she was deceased. But he stayed in the area watching as police arrived in a state of shock and fear. The police and the district attorney thought this story was ridiculous and they told Robert so. But he stuck to it. And I have to tell you, he thought that he was going to walk out of that precinct. I think it was very surprising to him when he was arrested after the interview on August 27th, 1986, for the murder of Jennifer Levin. Well, the media picked this story up and it was huge. This you probably do remember, even if you don't remember, you know, even if you weren't in the area. Preppy killer. The preppy killer. That's correct. The media loves a good moniker. They sure do. Robert Chambers' face was splashed all over front page news. This was New York elite, young, beautiful, but an awful crime of sex and murder as well. It had all the makings of a tabloid sensation. And Robert was its poster child. He stood six foot four, about 200 pounds, light blue eyes and dark hair. He was very handsome, as described by most. And he possessed a Kennedy type appearance. And people were just taken with his looks. You heard about that all the time. On the face of it, this was a story of privilege and private schools. And these were kids who people, you know, didn't assume bad things were going to happen to. And they didn't assume that they could be responsible for doing these bad things as well. Robert Chambers' father hired Jack Littman, a very seasoned criminal attorney, to represent his son. And we'll get to him and the rest of the Chambers family in a minute. But I want to first talk about the defense. On the face of it, as you said, The defense was going to be that this was an accident, not necessarily self-defense, but an accident due to rough sex initiated by the victim. The headlines reflected this, by the way. Uh, Some of the headlines were, you know, rough sex led to accident or Jenny killed in wild sex. The press dubbed this the preppy murder case, as you pointed out very quickly, reflective of the preppy looking Robert Chambers, who went to, you know, private school and People thought he was just too good looking to have perpetrated this crime. But was this the real Robert Chambers or was this just an image? The police and prosecution dug into Robert's past and what it revealed was not quite 
the rich, preppy school altar boy that he portrayed. Mm -hmm. You see, Robert's father, Robert Chambers Sr., had a good job, but he wasn't rich, Amy, by the standards of the kids who Robert hung out with. Mm -hmm. So how had Robert managed to procure this kind of, you know, rich kid image? It turned out that Robert's parents had separated when he was in elementary school, even though his mother, Phyllis, a devout Catholic, would not agree to a divorce. After the split, Phyllis worked as a private nurse for some very affluent families, though, which allowed her to afford a nice apartment in the safe part of the city on East 90th Street. And Robert lived with her in this apartment. Phyllis wanted big things for her son, so she did everything she could to provide Robert the opportunities and connections to climb the social ladder. One of the ways she did this was having Robert be an altar boy and getting confirmed under some very high-ranking officials at St. Thomas More Catholic Church, which was mostly due to Phyllis's services to certain affluent families who she worked for. Robert was also able to attend St. David's Middle School, but around this time, Robert's father became mostly absent. And though Robert went on to schools Choate and Browning, his grades plummeted and he was thrown out for stealing. He still managed to go to New York Prep and he graduated from there, but he wasn't a great student. While described as smart and charming, he really didn't do his required work. And so there were a lot of warnings about his subpar performance academically. The police also learned that Robert Chambers had a serious cocaine problem and he'd been using for several years. Remember, I think a lot of these kids were using drugs at a very early age, and I'm not surprised to hear that he developed a problem, and I'm sure others did as well. The police also learned that in addition to this cocaine problem, Robert had been burglarizing his friends' homes whenever they had parties. This sounds like typical life course theory, right? Things are escalating, starting young. It does. I'm sure it does. We'll, well, I'm sure we'll talk about that at the end, right? Sure. I mean, it's not good. And we could probably surmise that Robert was stealing to keep up with his drug habits, not having, mm -hmm. you know, income at that time. Or to keep up with his friends. That's true. They have nice things. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Robert did go to rehab and he would quit for a short time. He would quit using drugs, but eventually he would go back and his drug use would escalate. Now, in terms of his relationships with girls, he was attractive and many girls liked him, but he always seemed to choose those younger than him. That girl who was meeting him at Dorian's, Robert was 19. His girlfriend, she was 16 which I think signaled a type of immaturity that seemed to reflect his, I would say, lack of growth and maybe self-esteem. Mm -hmm. Lead detective Mike Sheehan was learning that Robert Chambers was far from just the altar boy his lawyer tried to portray him as. Meanwhile, while initially held without bail, this is a murder case, some high-ranking church officials came to court and spoke out on Robert's behalf. And so he was released in October 1986 on $150,000 bail. For a murder? That's correct. I mean, I know it was several years ago, but that still seems like a very low amount for a murder charge. It is. Traditionally, I think they packed the courtroom with church officials, and I wonder what the pressure was like at that time on the judge. However, as investigators dug deeper into Robert's serial burglary, they found that he wasn't acting alone. He worked with another man, a very violent young man, who had attempted to murder a young woman as well. So this is not looking good. This was a shocking discovery. And not only was the prosecution going to use this at trial, but it was also making headlines and not in a good way. So Jack Lippman, his attorney, was not happy, but he was quite brilliant. Jack Lippman arranged a story with New York Magazine to rehab Robert's image. Have you seen this? This is a very famous cover. And this image has always stuck with me. Do you remember this? No, but I'm looking it up as we speak. I hope other people do. The cover featured Robert in a blue suit, red tie, impeccably dressed, and he looked like a movie star on the cover, not a murderer. It's amazing what privilege can get you. It is. And right? a good lawyer. Exactly. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yes. Privilege got him a good lawyer, which got him. Yes. Oh, here it is. Wow. Right. Okay. He looks he does look like a Kennedy, Kennedy-esque or movie star. And Jack Lippman kept feeding the media information, some false, that painted Jennifer as a sinner and Robert as a saint. I have to tell you, Jack Lippman was merciless. And I think we should discuss this later on. Like, what is considered zealous advocacy for your client? And when does that cross a line? I was looking up 
the magazine spread with Robert Chambers. And I'm coming across some of the headlines in the New York Post at the time. Jenny killed in wild sex, says Central Park suspect's lawyer. You know, it's so sensational. Ladies' man held in slaying. Confession, I didn't mean to kill her. So they're painting Jennifer as this woman who was engaged in this crazy sex act and him as just like this preppy guy who's kind of taking the fall for all this. It's so disgusting. Again, yet another case you should highlight in your media and crime class. Oh, I absolutely will. I think I'm picking these now for this reason, but this is classic victim blaming, but it was all over the papers. Unbelievable. You know, it's awful to be blamed, but now imagine her family has to read these headlines every single day. Their murdered daughter being painted as the, you know, bad girl. Remember when I was telling you, well, you know how crazy New York City was in the 1970s and 80s? Well, some people didn't know if the police could handle all this. But there were those who rallied around Jennifer and her family, including the Guardian Angels, which was a nonprofit group organized in the late 1970s to make citizens arrest and protect potential victims of violence. You probably remember them. They wore red berets and they advocated protection of victims and their families. They spread from New York City to hundreds of cities across the nation. And they've been integral in some very famous high profile cases for trying to protect victims' families. That was just a side note. Back to the trial. When the voir dire began, um, voir dire is the questioning of potential jurors. One female juror was asked what she thought about the defendant. And you know what she said, Amy? He's even better looking than in the papers. I was worried you were going to say something like that. Yep. And this set the tone for what was about to unfold. And this trial would have a prosecutor who might not have been famous then, but she sure is now. The lead prosecuting attorney on this case was none other than Linda Fairstein. Oh, yes, that's a that's a name we know. Yes. Linda is well known for being the lead prosecutor who erroneously pursued the Central Park Five, the case involving the brutal sexual assault of young female jogger Trisha Mealy, for whom five innocent young minority males were convicted and later exonerated. And, you know, they now call themselves the Exonerated Five because they didn't like being associated with the Central Park jogger case. They like rebranded and they're all doing a A lot of them are doing really well. Youssef Salam is now, he ran for office in New York City. I did not know that, really. Yep. Oh, that's so good. I'm Mm -hmm. so glad to hear that as a side note. At the time, Linda Fairstein was running the first sex crimes unit in New York City. So the Robert Chambers case would come under her purview because of the implications. I also think, just so you know, at the time, neither she nor any other woman had tried a homicide in that bureau. There were only a handful of women then in the office, but... I think they wanted a female, and Linda was up for the task. She and Detective Sheehan got to work, and they got a great expert as well, one that we know very well, Amy. They got Dr. Werner Spitz. I knew you were going to say that. Well, his name has come up in how many episodes now? I don't know how many (laughs) cases. According to Linda, Jack Lippman had approached Werner Spitz for the defense, but he declined. But he was willing to work for the prosecution. Spitz said that Robert Chambers had to continue to apply force to kill Jennifer Levin and that this could not have been a few seconds like he claimed, in which he grabbed her by the neck and flipped her over. Now, one thing you might not know, there was also DNA, a first for Fairstein and one of the first in the criminal courts. And it showed that Jennifer's blood and saliva was on her denim jacket. Now, this might not seem significant, so let me tell you why it was. Detective Sheehan and Fairstein thought that it showed that the jacket was used as part of the crime because the jacket was not on Levin. So they believed that it showed that Robert probably put the jacket over her face and that's why the Mm. saliva and blood came out of her mouth on it. So indicating that Mm. additionally strangling her, he also suffocated her. Much to their shock, the judge said it couldn't be admitted because it wasn't reliable evidence at the time. This is the beginning of DNA. Wow, that's interesting. Well, in fact, the judge would not allow a lot of information that would have helped the prosecution. First, the DNA. Second, Jennifer was missing money and jewelry. And this was part of Robert Chambers' MO. Remember, he stole from people, but Mm -hmm. the judge said there was no way to know if that was Robert or if someone else had come along and stolen it. 
The judge also would not allow into testimony the fact that Robert had a serious drug problem or a criminal history. Why is that? They thought it'd be prejudicial. Prejudicial. I don't know about that because it shows a string of behaviors. I think so, too. So is it probative or is it prejudicial? Well, this was the judge's ruling. It was evident in the press as well that they thought the judge was not making correct rulings. There was even some Mm -hmm. reference to him as the ding dong judge on this case. So the press was mixed, right, because they're favoring chambers, but they're also criticizing the judge here. But the evidence did show that Jennifer had serious injuries to her body and face, and she had been hit in the face and strangled. It seemed highly likely that Robert was on top of Jennifer. But would this matter at trial? So the case would go to trial. In fact, there was no plea in this case. And the trial began in October of 1987. Judge Howard Bell interviewed all prospective jurors in private with attorneys present. Remember, I told you that the woman said he's much better looking in person. Mm -hmm. She was struck, right? Yes, she was excused. But this voir dire went on for months. It was very long. (laughs) It was supposed to be much quicker. But I think there were a lot of people that had to be excused. Mm -hmm. Remember, this was all over the media, too. Did they motion for a change of venue? You know, I thought, interestingly, they would have. But I don't think that they did because I think people were favorable to him as well. Mm -hmm. He was coming across well. The trial was supposed to take two to three weeks, but it wound up being 11 long weeks. And Dominic Dunn would also become a regular at the trial. And Dominic Dunn, we covered... His daughter. Did we cover his daughter? His daughter, Dominique Dunn, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend, and he was treated better in court than the Dunns were ever treated, and given a very light sentence, if you recall, of six years. We covered her case in season one for anyone who's interested in going back to listen. At one point during the proceedings, Dominic Dunn said to Jennifer's mother, Ellen... This is the last bit of business you have to do for your daughter. And she said that always stuck with her. Mm -hmm. This was the last thing that she had to do at times where she did not think she could. The trial was an absolute media sensation. It was called the biggest trial before O.J. Simpson. It was the trial of the century. Fairstein tried to humanize Jennifer and make the jury see her as a living, vibrant girl and not the dead girl. But Lippman tried to make it seem like shoddy police work, showing that the crime scene might have been botched. Remember, this was Central Park. Crime scene preservation would have been very challenging. And this is really before, I would say before we knew how crucial crime scene preservation was. Lippman and his team also painted Jennifer as a promiscuous girl who led an unvirtuous lifestyle. That poor family to have to sit through that is just horrendous. This is why Jennifer's mother didn't know if she could do this, right? I mean, they they painted her as this wild, aggressive girl, classic blaming the victim. Would Robert testify? No. And that was clearly a smart move because the prosecution could have exposed his lies and prior bad acts had he gotten on the stand. But he's also claiming self-defense, and that's an affirmative defense. And typically, when someone is claiming an affirmative defense, they take the stand because they somewhat have to. He's not claiming self-defense exactly. Remember, he's claiming an accident. Okay. And they thought they could use their own. They had their own expert, just so you know. Like, the prosecution at Werner Spitz. Okay. Their own expert came on and said that it was very possible the injuries sustained were exactly as Robert said. Okay, so accidental. Yes. So wouldn't that still be, if it was an accidental death, he could still be charged with second-degree murder, though. So they were not claiming any premeditation here. They're claiming he murdered her, but not that he he planned to do so. And his team is claiming that he caused her death, but accidentally? They're saying, yes, he caused her death, but it was an accident. So I still feel like in that type of defense, you still need the defendant to get on the stand to tell their side of the story. I would think so, but I think his lawyer knew that that would be a disaster if they put him up. Yeah. No, it was the right move strategically, but from the jury's standpoint, I feel like you need to hear that person's story. I think so as well. However, I want to point out that this trial was also very contentious. So when we talk about adversarial relationships, often it's not as adversarial as people think. The courtroom work group, prosecutors and defense attorneys will often cooperate. They work together on plea deals. This was not the case. This got downright adversarial between Lippman and Fairstein. She was very angry at Lippman for the things that he did. She thought he played very dirty. 
But more importantly was what the jury would think. The jury went out in March 1988, and they deliberated for nine days, watching the confession tape many times. So, Amy, you know, you brought up a good point. Wouldn't he have to testify? Well, no, because he already did. They had that tape where he told his side of the story, and he did not change that. Mm -hmm. So they got to watch that over and over again, which really is the same as him giving testimony. Well, but he doesn't have to be cross-examined. That's a way to protect him. Yes, it's his (laughs) testimony, but that's how he got his version of the story in without being Mm cross-examined. According to one juror, they did not believe his confession, but they couldn't figure out if he intentionally killed Jennifer or if it really was an accident. They really just didn't know what happened. They were stuck, and this does happen. It was kind of like the Casey Anthony trial. They could not figure out what Casey did, if anything. So on March 25th, 1988, the prosecution and defense met to discuss a possible plea deal. Mm. The offer from Jack Lippman, Robert's attorney, was manslaughter in the first degree, which did not have intent attached to it. But Robert had to admit culpability. Mm -hmm. Fairstein brought the deal to the Levins, who were not happy, but they also did not want to see Robert on the street until another trial and... Jennifer's mother didn't think she could handle another trial, to be honest. What type of punishment did that charge carry? The plea arrangement called for Robert to serve five to 15 years in prison. Oof, that would have been really tough for me as a family member. Very tough, but that jury was out for nine days, which is not good. That means that they could not agree. And I think that the Levins realized that it probably wasn't going to work out well. I don't I really don't think they were up for another trial. There's a whole documentary on this case, which I'll reference in the sources. It was a five-parter, but in the documentary, one of the jurors spoke and said that they were eight to four for guilt, but it wasn't looking good. Like, it wasn't looking like they were ever going to agree. On April 15th, 1988, Robert finally spoke publicly, addressing the court and apologizing to the Levin family for the pain he caused them. It was a hollow apology that had no meaning to the Levins. And there was public outrage about the deal, that justice had not been served for Jennifer Levin. After the deal, the outrage would only further because the famous tape was released a few months after the conviction and aired on a current affair. The famous tape I'm referring to is one where Robert and young girls barely dressed. There were two or three of them. They were in someone's apartment. It was December 1987. They were dancing I think they were inebriated and Robert picks up a doll and using a strange, weird, but joking, sinister voice. He looks at the doll and twists the head saying, my name is and I think I killed her. Now, I encourage everyone to look at this video and, you know, make your own judgments. The thought here was that the tape seemed to reveal what kind of person he really was. You know, he was making light of joking, of snapping, you know, a doll's neck and making a joke about killing it. It seemed to have some vindication for Jennifer after people had blamed her. But I think they also tried to make more of it like it was a confession by him and not just something that was very cruel and in poor taste and just really gross. That's not going to change anything except how the public views him. And this is just to stir up some more, you know, media sensation. That's true. But I will say it did change how the public viewed him. They did see him very differently after that. But that's not going to change how long he's spending in prison. No. So let's talk about what would happen in prison. Would Robert Chambers get out? If it's five to 15 years, he could possibly be getting out in five years. So did he? No. Robert Chambers served every bit of his 15-year sentence, but not because of the reasons we would hope. It wasn't because of his crime. It was because he had several infractions. He was not good. He could not behave. He was not a model inmate. I'm not surprised. He probably felt entitled. That entitlement, I'm sure, followed him, and that's not going to serve you well in prison. Not at all. And I think he could have, had it not been for that behavior, I believe he could have easily gotten out in five years because he would have gone in front of a parole board And he would have faked remorse. And I think they would have, you know, it's a good possibility he would have been out. But he was not. What type of infractions did he have? A lot of drug use. Drug use, okay. uh, But also behavioral infractions as well. He was eventually released in February 2003, again after serving his full sentence. He claimed he would lead a productive life following his release, but that did not last long. And he was still quite young. When he was released. Yes, he was still quite young. He was in his early 30s, which was very concerning to me. I was I remember his release and being so worried because 
I was like, he's still young. He's still good looking. He's still a predator. That's what I thought. About a year later in 2004, Robert and his girlfriend, Sean Cavell, by the way, Sean Cavell was his girlfriend during the trial and had stayed in some ways loyal to him throughout his entire sentence, visiting him in prison and, you know, standing by his side. The two of them were arrested on drug charges. Now, Sean Cavell got rehab because she was very sick and the judge was sympathetic to her. She didn't have a criminal history. Her drug life had clearly ravaged her. Uh, if you look at the difference, she looked very old and very sick and possibly because of her gender. Also, mm -hmm. they took pity on her. She might have gotten some chivalry there. But Robert got, get this, 19 years for drug distribution, what? much longer than he got for the murder of Jennifer Levin. I wonder if that, well, first of all, that shows the issue with our drug laws in our country. Absolutely. But that is, uh, I'm assuming part of, it's partially because they took into account his prior criminal history when sentencing him. I think this was almost similar to the OJ like symbolic. case. Uh -huh. um, symbolic. You know, OJ got away with it the first time, but they were going to make damn sure with that robbery uh -huh. to get him. You know, I think this was their version of getting him. Mm -hmm. As an aside, in 2018, it was revealed that that high-ranking Catholic clergyman who supported Robert during the trial had been abusing altar boys, sexually abusing altar boys. So the question came about, was Robert oh. possibly one of them? We don't know, but it's possible. And perhaps it gives motive to the support for Robert during the trial to keep him uh -huh. quiet. Yeah. It's possible. See this that. is speculation. Okay. As for Robert Chambers, he was released from custody a second time in July 2023 and is reportedly being supervised by parole somewhere in Rockland County, New York. But I also saw a recent photo of him walking somewhere in New York City, and I swear it looked like Central Park. I can't be sure. Okay, I saw that picture. It sends a chill through my spine. He's much older now. He's about 55, 56 years old. Still young enough to have a productive life if he so chooses. Yep. Absolutely. What his next moves are and whether he will stay out of trouble this time remains to be seen. But Amy, I would not be surprised if this is not the last time we hear his name in the headlines. Okay, let's discuss victimization and offending here. We have both aspects. Jennifer was unfortunately alone at night, making her a suitable target to a motivated offender and without capable guardianship. So no people around, no lights, no cameras, no surveillance. So are you suggesting that she left the bar to walk home alone and then Robert approached her and dragged her to the park of some sort or... No. In fact, I want to be upfront here. I believe Jennifer Levin did want to go to the park with Rob. I believe she, let me say that they knew each okay. other and had previously had sexual relations. Oh, okay. And I probably should have said that earlier. So my apologies for not. Mm -hmm. They did have sexual relations and Jennifer did want to have sex with Robert. I believe that. Okay. And I don't think anyone's ignoring that, but she shouldn't be punished because she wanted to have sexual relations with someone she'd had sexual relations mm -hmm. with, or even if she hadn't. I do believe that Jennifer was pursuing him that evening. Okay. So you think that they went to the park together, but then perhaps something happened that made him angry? Yeah, I think there's a, a couple of different theories here. We don't know for sure. But one of the theories was that when she went to the bathroom, he began going through her things and stealing from her and she might have caught him in the act. The other theory is that he was he he didn't seem like he was that interested her, in her that evening. And it seemed like he had gotten in trouble with his girlfriend. He was angry. So there's, you know, some idea here that maybe she laughed at him again or said something that made him feel, you know, bad. Mm -hmm. Perhaps in some way, something she said, not that that would blame her at all either, but mm -hmm. she might have made him angry. You know, we really can't be sure what the exact motive was here. I mean, it's also possible that she did not want to have sex with him. And he came on strong. She said no. And then maybe he, you know, he continued to assault her anyway. It's absolutely possible. Or maybe they started, you know, kissing or something started happening and he was getting rough and she just. Yeah. Didn't like there, it. Yeah. There are any number of theories. I think the only thing that we can say comfortably is I don't think he went to the park with her to murder her, mm -hmm. but he did murder her. And I yeah. believe the intent was there. Jennifer being alone, though, what I was implying was just that because she was alone in this, this does uh, signal routine activities theory where people can become victims 
um, you know, without guardianship and to a motivated offender when these factors are present. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, the theory of victimization, but there's also the theory of offending. So let's turn to Robert Chambers. This is more complicated. He's complicated. He was, and I believe, at the very least, sociopathic. His lies, manipulation, lack of empathy, remorse, superficial charm, irresponsibility, parasitic lifestyle. I can just go on and on with how he fits the bill. So he has sociopathic tendencies, but the origin of these tendencies is harder to say. Was it born or bred? I think there's a lead up here. His parents did not have a good relationship. There was definitely family dysfunction. I think also topped with expectations of Robert to be something very special. He was the only child. His parents had put a lot of stock in him. So it made me think of, you know, some strain theory. He's expected to be something special, but he doesn't necessarily have the skills or the drive. He does have opportunity, but the pressure from his mother, I think, was a lot to fulfill. And I think he might have cracked a little bit under this pressure. But his relationships also seem superficial and not deeply rooted. He didn't appear to have these social bonds that we need to bond us to society. Look at he he wasn't really particularly close with his family or his father in particular. I don't believe he was totally close with his mother as well, even though she stood by him. He didn't really have real friendships, you might say, or relationships. He wasn't bonded by education, no career aspirations, no religion, no organized groups. So he didn't have many social bonds and he started offending at an early age. So what you point out is, is this life course theory. Because you mentioned at a young age, he started stealing and you see his behavior escalating a bit. He almost could have predicted it. If you looked at, you know, he was almost working up towards this type of crime. Yes. I definitely see, you know, strain theory. As you mentioned, there was an issue with him being someone he wasn't and mm -hmm. trying to fulfill expectations. And that could lead to strain, which he clearly doesn't have the proper coping mechanisms. Right. Who knows what his drug use behavior was at that time? Right. So there could be something like biochemical going on. Perhaps he was using that evening and that made him more violent. Yes, absolutely. I think that's possible as well. I mean, I think it seemed obvious that he was on the path of a career criminal as well. And mm -hmm. maybe not on the path. He still was. Well, I was going to say he, he showed that he was because he reoffended. So we'll see what happens now. And as I said, I, I really want to point out, I hope that I'm wrong. I sincerely hope I'm wrong, but I just don't think this is the end of his criminal career. I don't. We'll see. Let's hope that I'm wrong on that one. <laughs> yeah. Okay, did the system get it right? Well, Robert Chambers was apprehended immediately and gave a hard-to-believe account of the events of the evening Jennifer Levin was murdered. And the jury could not convict him. So was this victim blaming, good lawyering, or reasonable doubt? I think it might be a combination Yeah, of all of them. I think, you know, five years would have certainly been too short. Mm-hmm. 15 years, you know, it's a little better, but, I, you know, I still think he may have gotten off a little too easy with just 15. Yeah, probably, but I would have felt a lot more comfortable with that. But he did wind up serving 15, mm -hmm. not because that's what the law prescribed, uh, per mm -hmm. se. And let me point out that Jennifer Levin's death preceded the victim rights movement, which was a shame because it might have been treated differently. However, her death would not be in vain, Amy, because... Her death would in part preempt various legislation to protect victims of sexual assault, most notably the rape shield laws. Rape shield laws prohibit an individual charged with a sexual crime from questioning a complainant about his or her prior sexual relationships unless such evidence is somehow relevant to the crime charged. That was a direct quote. Yes. Now, Michigan was the first in 1974 to implement rape shield laws, but the states and federal government followed in the late 1970s and early 1980s. There are exceptions, as you probably know, but the rape shield laws do provide more protection than Jennifer Levin was ever provided. And I think this is a big part of her legacy. I would also like to note that her mother was instrumental in working with legislators on passing various bills to protect victims. Last thing I want to cover today is I wonder, Amy, how much different would the outcome be today? I ask this because I think of cases like Steubenville, which featured Brock Turner victimizing Chanel Miller. You covered this case. 
Remember, Brock was painted as the good boy whose life was ruined because of one bad act. Yep. Now, I would I would hope, you know, had it not been for Chanel's case, I probably would have say, said I would hope that the media would be a little kinder to women. But I don't think that the media has come very far since the days of Robert Chamber and the way the media, you know, blames women and portrays women. Well, then you have, though, by comparison, look at the Duke rape case. Remember the Duke lacrosse scandal? Yes. The blame was placed on innocent mm-hmm. boys very quickly by a yep. now disgraced prosecuting attorney, Mike Nifung, where in the mid-2000s, he placed false evidence and blame of the sexual assault of a young minority female on several privileged Caucasian lacrosse players. Yep. So it does seem quite the mix. Mm-hmm. It seems like in some ways we've come so far. Yeah. And I think Jennifer Levin is part of that legacy, but in other ways, we have so much further to go. That's a good point. Regardless, I'm glad that Jennifer Levin's legacy is one that helps to further victim causes. And I am sorry for her family that they had to go through this tragedy. Uh, It was awful for them. I'm glad they turned it around to do something positive for other victims. I mean, I knew the case, but I did not know half of it. So thank you for Sometimes I think I don't want to cover cases that I've heard of before, but every single time we cover one that I think I know, I learn so much more. Oh, thank you so much for that, Amy. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. And we'll see you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include New York Magazine, The New Yorker, The Preppy Murder Documentary, The New York Times, and BarkerEpstein.com. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.